Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross-sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field-building initiative and online community that is co-hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, Collective Impact Forum Executive Director Jennifer Splansky-Juster is in conversation with John Kenya and Juanita Zerda of the social impact organization Collective Change Lab. Jen, John, and Juanita discuss what are some of the key qualities and practices needed when working to achieve long-term transformational change. Well, hello everyone. Thank you for joining us today for this discussion. Before we start, I am delighted to introduce today's guests for our chat. First, let me introduce John Kenya, who serves as founder and executive director at the social impact organization Collective Change Lab. John has been a practitioner, researcher, writer, teacher, and speaker on how organizations and people can achieve change for the past over 30 years. And for podcast listeners interested in collective impact, John is also co-author of the article Collective Impact that was published in the Stanford Social Innovation Review in 2011, as well as many, many follow-on pieces on the topics of collective impact, collaborative change, and systems change, and many others. Uh, Prior to founding the Collective Change Lab, John was my colleague and a great mentor for me here at FSG, and we had the pleasure of working together for many years. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. We also welcome Juanita Zerda, who serves as director at the Collective Change Lab. Juanita is a senior leader with more than 20 years of experience advising social justice organizations on strategy and assessment. She brings a multidisciplinary cross-sector and multicultural lens to bear on challenging issues. Hallmarks of Juanita's work are deep empathy and commitment to addressing disparity and disproportionality in communities and systems. Thank you for joining us today, Juanita. It is such a delight to have you both here to chat today. So I'd love to start by asking each of you to share a little bit about your journey and what led you into this work. Well, I sure, I'm happy to start. This is John. Um, well, you know, at, yeah, I've had uh, sort of three, three uh, stages of my professional career, at least. Um, I started in the wonderful world of advertising where uh, I first learned about the importance of narrative to achieve change. And, you know, of course, we didn't talk about it that way then, but uh, that is what it is. And then I, you know, I worked in business strategy, helping companies uh, skate to where the puck will be as opposed to where it is. And then the last 20 years, as, as Jen outlined, has been uh, doing the work of social change. So I've always sort of considered my um, passion to be uh, – uh, in, you know, it really around, uh, change. And, um, if there's, you know, one thing that I, I really sort of get excited about, uh, it is helping those people that are really trying to get better to evolve both individuals and collectives, uh, you know, go through that process. And, uh, that's sort of where, um, I get really jazzed and, uh, I'm really delighted to be here, Jen. Thank you. Thanks, John. So good to be back with you today. And Juanita. Hi, Jen. So thank you so much for the intro and for having us here. So as you mentioned, I've been in the world of uh, social services, like proven impact of social service programs for over 20 years. I've immigrated from Colombia. 
I actually landed on that world a little bit out of luck and and uh, different different storylines. I'm actually a lawyer from Colombia, so I when I arrived here, I couldn't practice law, so it was kind of like, what's next? And um, I started working with, uh, you know, at that time we used to call them anti-poverty programs and got really, really interested in outcomes. Like, how do you measure impact? And um, and did that for many years, you know, and I would say over the past, in very different areas, you know, from housing and community development to education, workforce development, public health. Um, but I would say over the past, maybe five years, I've started to work much more close to close with folks doing work on racial equity and kind of really understanding a little bit the difference between social services and social justice, I would say. And honestly learning from them, um, seeing the work through different eyes, you know, like focusing a little bit more on processes and outcome itself versus outcome on their own. And, and that, you know, has changed a lot the way, not only what I think about the work, but even, you know, who I work with and why I work, uh, why am I working for what I'm working for, right? And um, met John during that time a few years ago um, in, in a, you know, an evaluator's convening. And we just kind of connected over this idea of thinking differently about um, why, why are these programs you know, what are these systems uh, in, in place, right? And um, who are they involving and, you know, through what processes and not only thinking about kind of like sterile outcomes. And so now I am here, you know, on this adventure with John and uh, pretty excited about what's to come. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about the adventure, the, the Collective Change Lab. Um, sure, I'll, I'll jump in, and and Juanita, please share as well. Um, you know, for me, having spent the last decade or so doing the work of collective impact, it's the most powerful social social sector intervention work that I've done, and you know, it really calls on unique system leaders who are willing to go beyond their own self interest to focusing on the health of the whole. And there are some amazing system leaders doing collective impact work. But, you know, along the way, um, there were two sort of key observations that um, I made in terms of doing my years doing the work of collective impact. And one was that there was a serious need for people to shift from programmatic strategies. They, you'd, you'd get all the people together, get the, the, you know, people say, if you want to change the system, get the system in the room. And the system in the room would then come up with programmatic strategies instead of systemic strategies. And that, you know, for me, led to the development of a framework that uh, is used in the sector of the six conditions of six systems change, three of which are structural policies, practices, and resource flows, and three of which are more what we call cultural, which are about relationships and power dynamics and mental models. And um, so that was one shift that I felt really needed to happen in the collective work, moving from programmatic to systemic strategies. And the second one has been about, you know, even the best efforts that, that we have seen around collective change, collective impact, many are really only achieving incremental change when what I think many of us are hoping for uh, is transformational change. 
But here's the thing. When we talk about attaining transformation, it's important to recognize that transformation is something turning into something else, something that's more mature, something that's more connected. And what I've been observing is that the practices and approaches used in collective change work often don't create sufficient conditions for transformation. But we we have practices from cultural traditions and wisdom traditions, practices among indigenous peoples, practices from truth and reconciliation, restorative justice, and even spiritual practices that are outside of the mainstream hierarchical religion. Some of these practices have been, are, are thousands of years old, and they focus on creating conditions for individual and collective transformation. And so that's really, you know, where the journey started to become, you know, about where we're, we're headed today with the Collective Change Lab. And one of the things we were observing, um, and then I'll, I'll uh, stop for a minute, but just to say, that one of the things that we were observing was that regardless of where you drew these drew from on these transformational practices, there were really sort of five qualities that they typically have in common. And I'll just talk about them really quickly here. Perhaps we can get into more depth. The first is there's deep relational work among those that are involved. Second is there's a focus on interchange as well as outer change. Third, there's a focus on cultivating space for healing. Fourth is about transforming power dynamics. And fifth is about welcoming in serendipity and a sense of the sacred. Wow, that is super interesting, John. I definitely want to unpack um, unpack those five and understand more about how you have experienced them and see them contributing to the kind of transformational change that you mentioned that you're really focused on helping collectors achieve at the Collective Change Lab and in, in your current work. So maybe we'll take them one at a time. Let's start with deep relational work. You tell us a little bit more about deep relational work and maybe give us some examples of what that'll look like. Sure. Um, as I said, the first uh, of these five qualities is uh, that there's deep relational work among those that uh, uh, are involved. And um, when we, we talk about deep relational work, it's really about enabling people to be seen for who they are and to experience authentic connections. And I think most of the people in the Collective Impact Forum audience know that relationships are the essence and the fabric of really collective change. But here, you know, the here is, is, you know, how can we intentionally structure efforts in a way that really build true empathy and compassion so that connections between diverse participants happen? And I mean, I, I think, again, for this group, we all know this is not soft stuff, that it really does lead to significant uh, improvements and outcomes. And, you know, one example that's really resonant for me is uh, the work of Tony Bright when he was a researcher in uh, in Chicago, and he and colleagues researched, I think, probably 100 elementary schools to determine what drove uh, what drove performance. And their measure of performance was improvement in math scores and improvement in reading scores. And what they found after a number of years of research is that, you know, hypotheses about, you know, key drivers being better curriculum or stronger teachers, you know, those were important. But the number one driver of performance uh, was was uh, what Tony Bright ended up calling relational trust. And that's when administrators, students, parents, and teachers all got along well. And the stronger the relational trust, and they could literally quantify it, 
uh, the, the more effective and uh, more quickly uh, scores rose. So, yeah, so, you know, uh, this whole notion of relationships is critical, uh, has to be a place that you start. And following up on that, John, in the collective impact context, if you imagine thinking about really building those relationships and that deep relational work, do you see that happening, uh, for example, amongst like steering committee members, or are we talking about between leaders and members of community who are engaged in the work? Tell me a little bit more about who and how you see those relationships um, taking shape in a collective impact type context. Yeah, I think, you know, what you just said, it, it's it's a little bit of all of the above, um, I, you know, and, and yet, you know, not everybody can be in relationship with everybody. So we have to sort of, you know, sort of break things down and, and figure out where people are touching each other, if you will, in the system metaphorically. And, um, uh, you know, how we can build better relationships there. Um, I, I think, you know, often in the collective impact context, yes, it, we need to talk about uh you know, how we build deep relationships um, amongst uh, the steering committee, but that's not, that's not enough. Um, we really need to, uh, you know, engage community, um, which should be uh, a part of the steering committee, but also within the working groups. And, uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of sort of, uh, you know, this work needs to be done uh, in terms of building relationships uh, in an evergreen fashion. Uh, it's always true. And it's, it's always got to be a part of the work uh, really every time uh, people show up together. Yes, yes, definitely. So the next one that you mentioned, um, John, was inner as well as outer change. Can one of you share a little bit more about what that looks like in practice and what that entails? Sure. Yeah, we define it as prioritizing change within oneself as a means of creating change in the world. Um, it really is about doing that deep examination to kind of remove the fog from your eyes in order to see each other more authentically. You know, I think this John is was just talking about deep relational work, and I, you know, I think it's a little bit of chicken and the egg, right? Like once we see. We need to remove that fog, remove that fog to see each other authentically. And also, how, however, or end by seeing each other authentically, we get to kind of truly understand, you know, ourselves, you know, and um, it is in that connection that we need to examine our heart in, in, in whatever the connection is and, and the process and the outcomes that is producing, um, you know, folks are, racial equity folks are really uh, good at this, right? They are very clear on before you start doing any, you know, racial equity trainings, you need to first look at your own biases, right? You need all work starts with, all racial equity work starts with the I, you know, like, who am I, where I come from, like, what is the ideology that I was raised in? Um, how do I present? What is the language I use? And how much it impacts our relationships um, with each other? And when we do that and we kind of let our guard down a little bit in terms of being more open, uh, we are able to see both the love and the suffering of others in uh, more deeply. And um, when you do that, you do nothing but change. You know, there's, I think all of us have had those moments in which we 
how we encounter someone else's pain and how deeply impacted how we feel, who we are, what we think the next day. So um, it is both a precondition and a consequence of relating deeply with each other. Yeah, the chicken and the egg, as you said, that I think that's a super helpful analogy. They really contribute to each other and you can't really have one without the other. Mm -hmm. And you also talked, um, John mentioned cultivating space for healing. Tell us a little bit more about that body of work. You know, I think one of the things to note um, is that, you know, these aren't mutually exclusive. They they build on each other. They reinforce one another. It's hard if... uh, you're not in deep relationship to uh, participate with others and sort of cultivating a space for healing um, as an example. But we define this as supporting people and sharing their traumas and working to restore the harm done to them. You know, healing is not something you do all on your own. It, it happens through others, through community. And this is, you know, one of the called genius, but one of the real, you know, strong points of restorative justice is an approach to addressing harms that are committed. Restorative justice generally involves the entire community defining what the injustice has been. And, you know, as one example, and, and, you know, many people are saying this, I certainly believe this, I will say that, you know, the U.S. will never get where we want to be transformational change until there's a reckoning done with the 300 years of slavery and uh, almost as many years of genocide among the Native American population. And, you know, but on a less existential scale, it's important in when we address issues such as, you know, education, not to just identify disparities, but to give voice to the trauma behind the disparities. You know, when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, what's the trauma been on boys and girls of color? And how does the community own that? And unless that's a part of the quote unquote problem solving process, uh, I think it's really hard to get to transformation. John, one thing I've heard a lot of folks um, also often in the, in the racial equity field talking about is reckoning and uh, a process of, sort of reckoning and repair before you can move forward with change. Is that similar to what you're talking about here with healing or help, help me kind of draw some connections there? Yeah, thanks, Jen. I, I think it is. It, it's, you know, it is, I think we're saying the same thing, uh, that a, a reckoning, reckoning needs to happen. And every time we go through yet one more sort of reform effort that's aimed at, you know, sort of big transformative outcomes uh, uh, in education is one example. And, and we don't go through this reckoning, we're going to be held back. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think this can happen in the, you know, big ways, uh, like the, you know, the, the country coming to terms with, uh, you know, what we've done, but I think it can happen, you know, in communities, uh, you know, in, in, in smaller groups. Um, and, uh, in fact, I think that's likely to be where we get to this reckoning as a country is that it's going to happen on a smaller basis and it will sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of flower out to, uh, more, more parts of the country. So the next one you mentioned uh, was transforming power dynamics. For me, this quality is where the rubber meets the road. Um, We define it as building power with those who have been marginalized while equalizing accountability amongst all. Um, 
And I would say um, there's no lasting transformation unless power dynamics change, right? You can have, you, we can recognize each other, we can go deeper with each other, we can have a moment of, you know, justice and reconciliation, of reckoning. But the last thing is truly, where is the power, right? Like that, did that make a difference in the way decisions are made? Who is making them? Who is judging them? Um, the continuity is in that transforming power dynamics. Now we, we, all of us in the world of social change, you know, we, we have, we do great programs. There's great research. There's great, um, you know, we talk a lot about sometimes fidelity of implementation and all these big things. And yet, you know, the more we see it, it is in that engagement with whoever is most effective, whoever the, whoever the system is changing for. It is in those engaging uh, with, you know, individuals or communities that we come to true aha moments of how the system must change. But it's not only engaging them, it's truly, you know, stepping aside to hear their wisdom and their guidance into how the change is to occur, or how the transformation is to occur. Um, so, you know, when we talk about power, power dynamics, sometimes it gets very theoretical, you know, what does power mean? You know, who gives power, when gives power doesn't, you know, honestly, it's, simple questions is like, who is in the room? Who are the most affected by the problem identifying what this problem is or what this change needs to occur? Are they deciding who, how to address it? And when do we know that we're, we're all good, right? Who's saying that? Is it the same people who started? Um, we often just do it piecemeal, right? Um, but power is that, it's truly the, the who says this is okay and how it's changing and what is a good idea. And Juanita, do you have any uh, like concrete examples of yeah. collaboratives or um, situations where you have seen power shift? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously there's like two kind of very different and extreme um, situations, you know, one, I think that there is the situation in my country in Colombia with priest processes. You know, definitely some of those priest processes were top-down negotiated, um, and you know there were sides, yes, no. And the lasting um, peace occurs in communities, right? And in the communities where that has occurred, in communities where they have themselves done a process with. Um, the guerrilla or the paramilitar, whoever give out the arms to say, okay, what needs to change in this community and how do we collectively and you know, take the ownership and the accountability for that change, right? Um, complicated process whenever you have had people truly had, you know, everyone around them killed by the other. And yet this, it occurs, you know, that the dynamics change because you know, we collectively decide to share that power for the change. In the United States, I actually have worked a lot in education in the recent years. And I think that that is where I have seen it truly uh, taking shape. And is, um, you know, educational reform has often been very tops down, like we know it, right? Like the shiny, the next shot silver bullet and 
very data-driven, which I kind of love. That's the geek in me, love it. And yet not lasting, not impactful, not authentic. And it's in the last years also, thank you thank, uh, to the racial equity folks that have been more the voice of students has been much more uh, at the forefront. And reforms have been like calling for that, right? Like, okay, this is, unless we have the community and unless we have true student voice and student agency, this is not gonna stay, this is not gonna change. And I have had, you know, I've worked with folks in, for example, Milwaukee, where it's been the students that have gone in and said, okay, how do we make our, you know, our school more welcoming, more sense of belonging, you know, and this is just literally, they have changed the way furniture is arranged. Right? Like they themselves saying, this is what we want for change and giving, and that, and that is, a, you know, power, a changing power dynamics. Um, so it happens, you know, it truly happens and in some spaces more than others. Um, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. It can be slow and yet it's transformational. Absolutely. Um, let's see. So that was deep relational work. We've talked about inner as well as outer change, cultivating space for healing, transforming power dynamics. And the fifth one that you all mentioned was uh, serendipity and the sacred. I'm very intrigued. Uh, I'd love to hear more. So I'm, I'm happy to take this one. And I also uh, want to fold in an example that I think really brings perhaps uh, all of what we've been talking home. Um, first, the serendipity and the sacred, we define it as acting in right relationship with the earth and with others while inviting a universal source, which is love, to participate in the process. Um, you know, somewhere along the line, someone somewhere decided that, uh, at least in the Western world, uh, solving social spirituality and solving social and environmental problems should be separated. And, you know, I, I think part of my awakening in, in this work is, is really recognizing how much of, we've been influenced by dominant culture. Um, in terms of sort of, you know, what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And I think this is one particular area where I think in many mainstream social environmental problem solving um, efforts, people are very uncomfortable to talk about spirituality. But, you know, the reality is, given where we are as a society, given where we are, where we are as a planet, uh, with our planet, um, we are not going to get to transformational change just based on, you know, what we humans can do. Uh, we have to access sort of, you know, more the universal source. Now, people describe that in a lot of different ways. Uh, I think we're describing it here as love. Um, but let me give you an example of sort of how this all, you know, ties together when we're thinking about creating more radical containers, more ways of structuring the collaborative work that we do in, for example, collective impact efforts, uh, where we are actually trying to attain those five qualities that we've been talking about. One very powerful example, and it's a case study that we're just about to publish, uh, is, um, comes from ROCA, which is a community-based organization um, that works in Boston and uh, in Baltimore. And uh, ROCA um, works with high-risk youth, most of whom are formerly incarcerated, 
and supports them in shaping positive lives. And they use the, the, the practice of peacekeeping circles uh, in their work to actually change systems. Now, uh, some may be familiar with peacekeeping circles, um, but uh, let me, I can explain a little bit about them. Um, they're a practice of many indigenous peoples. Uh, Roca's particular method of running circles they learned back in the year 2000 from the Tagish Tinglet native peoples in the Yukon territories. And circles, and there are many varieties of circles, but um, in this particular orientation, the intention is to establish an intimate, honest, non-hierarchical conversation that's devoid of judgment. Um, in the circles, they're facilitated by a keeper who leads sacred rituals and supports deep conversation. Um, and the conversation happens one at a time. There's a talking piece that's passed around the room, and only the person who holds the talking piece can speak. And Roca runs these circles with young people, and, and they more recently have uh, begun running uh, circles that include both young people, formerly incarcerated, and police as a part of the circle. And they've had some real profound transformations um, when, you know, the people that are in the circle, regardless of who they are, um, you know, come away with just a very different perception, mental model, if you will, uh, of the other. Police showing up on the first day in uniform and, uh, and holstered weapon on the last day walking in in street clothes. Um, I mean, just really profound change comes about. So much so that this process, which I would say, you know, having observed it and also having participated in many circles, contains the five qualities, all five. Um, so much so that it's actually led to police changing policy in a way that's more conducive to supporting youth versus being automatically punitive. So what we're trying to do here is draw the line from uh, sort of a container and, 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 and processes that sort of go beyond the incremental structures that we have today that can support transformation that ultimately you know, it's cultural change that supports structural change uh, and ultimately better outcomes for uh, people that we're supporting. So hopefully that'll give you a little bit of a sense of how, um, you know, all of this can come together and we're seeing it come together. Yeah, that it's always super helpful to have an example and that the ROCA work is quite impressive and very much look forward to reading the case study that you all are putting together. Uh, so, and just to reiterate for folks who might know the inverted pyramid framework from the water of systems change that um, John co-authored and referred to earlier. It's that cultural change you mentioned around shifting mental models and relationships and connections and power contributing then to the, the top of the pyramid, if you will, the policy and the practice and the resource flow change. So it's, John's really um, helpful to hear that example also holding the inverted pyramid framework in mind that I know has also informed a lot of the, the work that you and Juanita are doing now. So I really love how that ties, ties all of it together. Um, so this is really um, giving, certainly giving me a lot to think about uh, as we do, uh, do work to support folks working in collective change processes. I'm curious if there are other pieces of work of the Collective Change Lab that either of you would like to speak to, thinking about 
making this even more concrete or accessible to folks uh, listening that are practicing or interested in collective impact work? Well, Winita, I'm happy to jump in. I know you have some thoughts as well. Uh, Winita and I are working on one um, case study uh, that's in Morocco, um, and uh, um, work that's being done by the camp, supported, facilitated by the Tamkeen Foundation, its community foundation there. And the focus is on, and it was initially on community development, and it's now spread into education. And they take a totally emergent approach. Um, it's really, you know, focused on sort of uh, facilitating the process for people to do that inner work um, and relational work uh, so that they can get a better recognition of what they collectively want to do. And what's fascinating to me is that it truly is totally emergent. They don't set goals at the beginning for what they want to do. They, they literally let it emerge. And the other dimension that I, I find very interesting, and I think, you know, we as a field really need to, to, to you know, learn from and, and come to terms with is they don't sort of think in terms of traditional outcomes. And we can argue whether or not that's, you know, a good thing, but what they focus on is what they call manifestations. Um, and what they're really trying to get is really stories and narratives, visual and, you know, coming directly from people um, of sort of how it feels to be in the change themselves and how the community, whatever the community is, feels different. And I think, you know, in this world of complex systems change that we're, many of us are working in, there needs to be a better way to articulate how the system is changing. And I'm just fascinated by some of the work they're doing around, around that, um, as it looks very different than, you know, what traditional outcomes work would look like. Ooh, very interesting. Another case study I can't wait to read. And Juanita. Yeah, I want to expand a little bit on what John is saying, um, you know, on this idea of transformation and the inverted pyramid, you know, as you, as you rightly like mentioned, Jen, you know, transformation occurs in those lower levels of the pyramid, right? On that. Um, And, you know, they're very different type of buckets, right? From like resources and structures. Um, they really, from everything that we've been, uh, you know, working on and communicating with others and like opening our eyes to different traditions, you have to kind of set aside the traditional way of thinking, you know, like our dominant culture ways of thinking. Because um, there are parts of the pyramid that call for different elements of our being, right? Uh, beyond rationality that we so much privileged and we are so, um, you know, close to, to truly thinking about the heart and the spirit. And um, that's where mental models change, right? Like you can think different. I have thought many times differently, but when I feel truly different, that's when my thinking truly changes, right? Not just the, in the moment, but in a constant um and um like a lot of us could have experienced that during moments of great you know difficulty or pain or losses you know the way we think changes um so it's experiment experiential and um so i'm you know maybe just to say you know that transformation is it's not that you have to put rationality aside or deny rationality 
you cannot have to put it in par with other parts of your being. You know, you have to elevate other parts of your being to more deeply understand the complexity that our systems have, especially as we evolve as a society, right? Like who we are, needless to say, with communications, with the conflicts that we have at the present, like the complexity of all that uh, calls for a different way of existing and thinking and feeling. And that's what we're just saying, let's try, let's try it out. You know, let's try it out being, just having our minds at the par with other parts of us. Um, and I think Westerners, and I obviously am one of those, right? Like, um, never mind that I come from Colombia, like I'm still in that, in that kind of traditional, we are not used to that, right? We're used to the mind, you know, where that's our tradition. Uh, which I love, like, believe me, I mean, I went to law school, then did philosophy, and then specialized in outcomes management. I'm the first one who loved the brain and the mind. And yet, my death has happened in other moments, you know, in other in other moments. Oh, that's, yeah, really giving giving me a lot to think about. And I think I'll give folks um, listening to to our podcast a lot to think about. So thank you for that, Juanita. To close, I just wanted to ask you both, you know, these are tough times we find ourselves in for so many different reasons. And I'd just love to hear what you are finding to fuel you and give you energy right now during these tough times. You know, I said to John, when we started talking, um, I very early through living in very um, War torn, war, war torn areas of my country is that hope is a matter of choice. Like you always will have reasons to have it or not, or to not have it. And I choose hope, right? We're doing this work, all of us here in this conversation, those who are listening to us, we're choosing hope. You know, we're not giving up. And of course, when you come from privilege, which I do, um, it's also moral imperative. So yeah, my heart is heavy often. Of course it is. And there's moments that I'm, you know, exhausted in the solution. And yet there's no turning back. Like I am here and we're moving forward. And so that kind of choice on hope. And the second one is as dark as the days get, there's always light on our connections with each other, right? Like in those, you know, those days of, you know, those weeks that we've been recently. And yet you go outside and this the moment where somebody meets you on the street and says like, whoa, you don't look very good. You're, you're okay. And, and, and that exists in darkest moments. Um, then we, that fuels me. It, it completely fuels me. This conversation today fuels me. Uh, working with John obviously has been an incredible, not only privilege, but delight to engage in these conversations and to, um, yeah, to have a adventure of hope, I guess. How about you, John? <laughs> I feel like we should close with uh, Winita's uh, beautiful comments. Um, well, I, yeah, I guess, you know, I was reading something today uh, that said, you know, we live in a dominant culture and in some respects, uh, dominant culture is thousands of years old. You know, it's, uh, it's about power. 
uh, and everything flows from that. Um, and yet, you know, there is a world of love out there that keeps, you know, keeps inserting itself. Uh, and, um, you know, over and over again, there's, oh, there, if there's a choice, there's a choice around hope and there's a choice around love. And I think love does fuel. Um, I, I think there's tremendous fuel that comes from love. Uh, and, you know, for me, it's, it's in the connections with other people and I'm an introvert. Uh, and, but, um, you know, sometimes when you hear people talking they're they're, they're talking, they're more than just them talking there. They're, there's something else that's flowing through them. And I, I think that's, that's the energy that we all need to harness in this. And, and that, you know, that really is the focus of what, you know, what we're talking about is not, is, is very, I don't know, it's, it's obvious. It's at one level, it's very simple. It's, it's, it's not new. Um, you know, many people live this way, the way that we're talking about, uh, you know, in their personal lives, but, you know, they, when, when they, when they enter the door of, you know, the nonprofit or foundation they're, they're working in somehow, you know, it, it clicks in differently. And we've got to normalize this. We've got to normalize expectations around this is, you know, the opportunity that's in front of us to all, you know, sort of progress together, together with equity and with justice. And so, uh, yeah, you know, that's what fuels me is um, the connections with others. Well, John and Juanita, I want to thank you for being in conversation with us today. Um, any conversation that can kind of close us out with inspirations around hope and love, certainly in my book is a good one. And so I want to thank you both and say it's been a real pleasure chatting and hope that we can talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you very thank you, much. Great. Thank you. And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what was discussed, we've included information in the footnotes for this episode. The intro music for this episode was composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And for those interested in more learning events, registration is now open for the Collective Impact Action Summit that will be held on April 27th through 29th, 2021. The Action Summit is our biggest learning event of the year, with over 25 virtual sessions focusing on topics like narrative change, power dynamics, data, and community engagement. And one big plus for being virtual is that we're recording all the sessions and sharing those recordings with attendees after, so you won't have to worry about missing a session. You'll have access to them all. Visit the event section of collectiveimpactforum.org to learn more. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in the next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.